This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Pleased to welcome uh, to our studios the Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, uh, the Honorable Catherine McKenna. Uh, welcome to CHML and welcome home, I guess. This I is am a- happy, really happy to be back in Hamilton. I was actually here a few days ago for uh, for Easter, too. You, uh, of course, live in Ottawa now, but uh, this, you grew up just a couple of blocks from here. Uh, I, I grew up really close to here uh, in the West End. I went to St. Mary's High School. Actually, I went to grade school, Ecole Notre Dame by Gage Park. Mm-hmm. So I'm a huge fan of Hamilton. Um, I actually, the Prime Minister came to Hamilton, and I kind of put a bug in his ear. I said, you really need to go to Donut Monster. Show solidarity to Lock Street. <laughs> well, and you also went to the West Town. But, I mean, if you're going to Lock Street, you have to do the West Town. And he did. <laughs> and he did, to his credit. Uh, a couple of things I want to talk about. I know you've got a very busy agenda here, and I want to talk about what you're going to be doing later on today. But I want to get your reaction also to an announcement from south of the border earlier this week. Uh, Donald Trump, who has uh, never met an Obama policy he didn't want to tear up, uh, has now rolled back emission standards for the U.S. auto industry, announced that earlier this week. Uh, there's going to be pressure on you and the Canadian government now to follow suit, uh, obviously from automakers. How, how's the government going to respond to this? Uh, well, I mean, we're very committed to trying to figure out the path forward so that we tackle uh, pollution, so carbon pollution, um, and uh, the vehicles, that's uh, a huge part of that. Um, we're going through what's called a midterm review, so we're certainly going to look at competitiveness and look at what's going on south of the border. Um, but the U.S. is not a monolith. So I was just, I had a conversation yesterday with Governor Jerry Brown of California. Put in context, California is the sixth largest economy in the world. Um, they have, they're keeping with the stringent, the more stringent standards. Um, and, and we had a good discussion of, uh, about the opportunities for Canada to work with them. Uh, a number of states, I think over a dozen states, have the uh, California standard. Um, so, you know, we all have to figure out how we're going to move forward to tackle climate change. But the reason you want to have tailpipe standards um, is that uh, you can lower your costs because mm-hmm. you use less, uh, you, you less, uh, use less fuel. You also uh, are less emitting, and you're just more efficient. So, anyway, we're going to we're doing this review. Um, we are also, uh, you know, we got to make policies in Canada that are good for Canadians. We should mention, by the way, that even in California, this is not a liberal versus conservative issue. The former governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was very much an environmentalist when it came to these issues. Why are we lagging behind on this side of the border? This is a, every time we talk about carbon pricing and about climate change, it becomes a political debate uh, about taxes as opposed to the environment. Well, so look, I, I mean, I'm someone who's very practical. And people need to, they need to know, I care greatly about jobs. I care greatly about go, growing our economy. Um, but we also need to protect our environment. And in, in the 21st century, you can actually do both. We're lucky. We have new, uh, as I like to say, I, we didn't get out of the Stone Age because there were no stones. We actually just got smarter. Um, so there are cleaner technologies. There are better ways of doing things. Um, and I just made a big announcement yesterday with the Premier that we're supporting energy efficiency in homes so that you can go and insulate your home. You can go have better window, windows, and that can save you like close to a thousand bucks per year. Wouldn't you want to do that? Because um, it's the right thing to do for the environment, but it's also just being smarter. Um, I, I like to say that I, I'm about bringing people together. Um, I, this is should not be a partisan issue. In fact, I got that advice from the former Prime Minister, Brian Mulroney. He's a conservative. I'm a liberal. Um, but he did a lot of good by the environment. And so anyway, I don't like drama. So I try to just, you know, work hard, make the economic case. Um, and there's a huge economic opportunity through clean growth. Um, Mark Carney, who is the governor of the Bank of Canada, called it $30 trillion. So we want to be leading the way, creating good jobs, growing our economy. And also I have three kids. 
we owe it to them to ensure that we have a sustainable future for them. But you're getting a lot of pushback on this. I mean, uh, the Saskatchewan governor, premier, rather, of course, is pushing back, saying he's not going to do anything about this. Uh, Salinger in, in Manitoba has kind of reluctantly come on side with this. Uh, it's happening in Quebec. It's been going on in B.C. for the longest time right now, very successfully. Everybody seems happy with it. Uh, of course, we have cap and trade here with Premier Wynne here in the province of Ontario, but you've got Doug Ford now, who's the, uh, the progressive conservative leader, suggesting he's going to scrap that and he's not going to allow the federal uh, program to go into place here. Why is there such a pushback on this? And are, are they climate deniers? I mean, there seems to be something going on here. Oh, look, I'm not going to speculate uh, where uh, where Doug Ford is on on taking climate on taking uh, climate action, whether he believes climate change is real. Um, but but it, look, we have 80 percent of Canadians live in in a province where there's a price on pollution. So that's Ontario, Quebec, uh, Alberta, and British Columbia. Those are the fastest growing economies in Canada. You can do both. Um, and with a, putting a price on pollution, we've said it's up to the government to decide what they're going to do with the money they raise. They could do tax cuts. Um, they could do rebates. They could invest in energy efficiency. Um, it's just a smart way uh, of doing things. And it's also very hard um, you know, to say you're just going to get out of a cap-and-trade system. So Ontario's in a cap-and-trade system with, uh, with Quebec and California. And companies have credits. Um, so what happens? You can't just, you know, it's easy to say you're going to undo everything. Um, and I don't think that's what Ontarians want. I think Ontarians, when I, when I talk to Ontarians, they want to see action on climate change. They want to figure out, of course, what's, you know, where, they, where they're going to get a job. And that's all part of this because the economy is changing. Uh, we're moving in a cleaner direction. Um, and there are huge economic opportunities. And, and so the retrofit program that we announced yesterday, uh, there are 100 million dollars. Uh, yeah, 100 million dollars, but 100,000 jobs uh, associated with people that are uh, in in trades that are you know that are helping in retrofit programs that's great like you see you can do both and so it's I know it's hard sometimes because you know it's framed as it's too expensive it is too expensive not to act so insurance claims have gone from 400 million dollars a decade ago to over a billion dollars so the Grand River in Brantford, we are going to see more incidents like that, flooding, um, forest fires that we've seen across the country. Uh, we have a thawing Arctic, um, and we need to take action. Like, we just need to be smart about this. And that's, there's pricing, but that's just a part of it, putting a price on what you don't want, pollution. But it's also making investment in clean technologies. We've made historic investments in public transportation. Um, we need to adapt to the impacts of climate change. Uh, I, actually, yesterday I announced um, a partnership with the Canadian Climate Atlas. And for people that wonder, you know, is it really true climate change is happening and, and how do I actually understand it? Go to this atlas. It's called Canada Climate Atlas. And you can go and see the projections down the road for how many hot days, for example. So how many days over 30 degrees? Right now, so I just checked it out for Toronto. They didn't have Hamilton, but for Toronto, uh, you go from 12 hot days under a scenario where we don't really do much on climate change, 12 days over 30 degrees to 87 by the turn of the century. So that's not just an inconvenience. That's really bad for elderly people. So more deaths, chronically ill people, people who don't have air conditioning. So we need to take action and we need to do it in a smart way. And that's our plan. The pushback is, is regrettable, in my opinion, because I, I, I understand that we have to do something about this. And, and I find it mind boggling that on the West Coast in California and British Columbia, they seem to get it and they've made moves on this. And it's accepted now as the norm in those places. Uh, as you move further east, though, there just seems to be this pushback on this. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, I think an awful lot of people in this country, according to the latest surveys I've seen, believe in climate change and know that we have to do something. But they're scratching their heads and saying, well, we're not sure if this is the best way to do it, if, if, if doing carbon pricing is the best way. But I think that's because of the way it's been characterized by some of the people that are opposed to this in the first place. Well, I, 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 you know, it is regrettable that some people want to, politicians, want to make it a really polarizing issue. It just shouldn't be. Acting on climate change should not be a partisan issue. Yeah, we've got to figure out what tools make sense. And it is harder. So if you're a province like Alberta, you rely, you know, to a large part on, on the oil sands. Um, so we need to figure a way out. And I've said, you know, they need to get a, they need the pipeline. Um, and, and people think that's strange because they're like, well, the Minister of Environment, how can she say that? Because that fits within our climate plan. We built that in and we're transitioning. And Alberta, actually, the government, the current government of Alberta put a cap on emissions from the oil sands, first ever. They put a price on pollution. They're phasing out coal. So they're taking a lot of action. But we're in a transition and it's going to take time and we've got to be smart about it. But we should do it together. And the thing is, if we don't, if we don't act, not only are we, you know, contributing uh, greatly to climate change, but also we're not going to take advantage of the economic opportunity. Um, if you look at countries around the world, and I, I travel a fair bit for my job, I always bring a trade mission with me because I like promoting Canadian companies and our technologies. Um, they're, they're, you know, going gangbusters. They're working really hard when it comes to, uh, to new technology like China and solar panels. I mean, they're installing the equivalent of a footfall field of solar panels every single hour. Um, when you go to Europe, they're really making advances on um, energy efficient um, or electric vehicles. And so we need to make sure we're positioning ourselves well. We need to make sure that we're promoting Canadian technology so we can create good jobs. Are people aware of that as you go across the country and talk to, to organizations and, and governments, frankly, about that, that when it really you look at the global picture here, that North America is actually lagging behind what's going on in most other parts of the world, as you mentioned, even including China, the UK and, and European countries, they get this and they're already moving ahead on this. Well, I actually think we're doing a pretty good job. Um, I just saw uh, there was a, a survey of how many clean tech, the top clean tech companies in the world, and Canada is punching above its weight. We have 12 out of 100. Um, and I see clean technologies across the board. Some, I, I kind of laugh sometimes because clean technology, a lot of people would say, well, wait, I'm never going to have a job in clean technologies. I mean, there's, a, you know, there's new technology for cement. So a Canadian guy, he figured out how you could take emissions from industry, which you don't want, injected into cement so you think something that's pretty basic and you reduce the emissions but you made stronger cheaper cement so that's just smart and so it's not you know these new ideas that are kind of out there and it's the jetsons or something these are practical practical everyday things that are available like you know the thermometers smart thermometers in your home those will really reduce your, you know, by maybe 150 bucks a year. And it's just smarter. Instead of why you heat your home uh, when you're not there, just have it, you know, the heat come on when you're uh, when you come home. So there's ways of doing things. I think Canadians are generally on board. Um, but as I say, hard things are hard. And I see it as my job to try to bring people together to kind of understand what their concerns are. But also we have to push forward. And uh, I was going to say the environment and the economy go together, and it's really true in our case. But, you know, you need to talk to people and you need to listen to people. That's a great segue into why you're here in town today. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, right across the road from us here at CHML, of course, is the McMaster Innovation Park and the Automotive Research Center right beside that. Uh, where there's cutting technology being developed on a daily basis for advanced manufacturing and for cleaner cars and emissions. 
so you're heading to McMaster University in just a little while here. Yeah. So uh, when I was at when I was at St. Mary's, I was on the McMaster campus, and I was a competitive swimmer, so I swam at Mac. So it's always good to go to go back to McMaster. Yeah, McMaster's been doing really amazing things. So has Mohawk College uh, in terms of clean innovation. Uh, we're making an announcement today. It builds on the announcement we made yesterday, uh, which is a program with the Ontario government to allow uh, retrofits and cleaner buildings um, on campuses across uh, Ontario. So that's a, a big announcement we're, we're making. Um, I'm going to tour some labs. Uh, always excited. Uh, and I'm going to be talking to some students. Uh, I try to do what I call the campus climate tour. Uh, it's students, you know what, students get this. Uh, they wonder whether adults, you know, the older folks get it because they say it's our planet and we're just going to get on with it. We're just going to innovate. We're going to figure this out. So well, you're going to see the cogeneration plan over at Mac, aren't yeah. you? We, we talked about that on our program a while ago. Yeah, I'm going to see the cogeneration plant. Um, it's just a lot of exciting things go on. And uh, if you're if you're on social media, check it, check out my my Twitter feed and Facebook feed because I'm going to put it out there. I always like showing solutions because I think Canadians need to see. Okay, what is this all about? It's what's going on at McMaster. That's what it's about. It's what's going on, you know, across uh, Ontario. It's what's going on across the country where people are being smarter. We're innovating, creating good jobs, uh, creating economic opportunities. Well, there were skeptics, and I know that we talked about this many, many years ago when when these ideas about green technology first started, and a lot of people said, "Come on, really? Uh, look at Hamilton. Does that mean that we're going to close down steel plants because it's it's you know it's pollution causing, etc?" But there is a green economy that's emerged, and it's emerging right here in Hamilton. A lot of people may not be aware of it, but those are new jobs, different kinds of jobs, and for the most part, actually well-paying jobs. It, it, it is happening. Yeah, and but as I say, it's it's happening in traditional industries too. Uh, like our aluminum and steel, our emissions profile is low. It's lower. And so we should be promoting it because companies around the world are looking to source lower source, you know, uh, products that are produced with less emissions. So I think it's it's a competitive advantage. I was certainly happy to he- see the prime minister come and do his, his uh, steel town tour. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important. Um, you know, obviously, I'm extremely proud uh, for being from Hamilton and steel has been a huge part of it. And there's ways to produce it more uh, efficiently. But there's also new jobs that are being created too, and that's and, and that's really great to see. I'm also doing another exciting thing. Um, I, I said I was a swimmer. Uh, I'm uh, going to Randall Reef where we're doing a, a huge cleanup. Um, Randall Reef, you might know, is the most polluted. Uh, site on the Great Lakes. Uh, it's in Hamilton Harbor, uh, and we are investing $46 million in the federal government, and it's a great partnership with the province, um, also local partners. So that's everyone from uh, the city of Hamilton and Burlington to the Port Authority and also Stelco. And so cleaning up this site, uh, is, uh, it's a huge job because it's contaminated. And well, I, I mean, listen, I, I, we've talked about that on the program since that first started. Yep. And you and I grew up in this city, and you know what a, a, a problem Randall Reef always has yep. been. And trying to get everybody to the table to try to find a solution was like herding cats because you had to get to Halton Region, the city of yep. Hamilton, uh, the, the, obviously the industries down there, and both levels of government. Uh, and I don't know how you've held it together over the, the number of years that you have, but it's there. Uh, have you had an update on the progress as to how it's going? Yeah, so it's on track. Uh, we're almost finished uh, the construction of the containment facility. You've probably seen that. I was there yeah. uh, last year. Um, and then they're going to start the dredging of the sediments. That takes uh, a couple of years. And then it's going to be 
capped and then it's going to be Portland's. So it's an example of the environment and the economy going going together. Every time I'm in Hamilton, my parents take me down. We go for a, a walk with my kids uh, at the harbor front. It is amazing what has happened there. And so this is also going to be a huge gener- generator of tourism dollars. So, you know, people love coming now to the waterfront uh, in Hamilton. We've, we've estimated that probably the economic benefits are around $150 million. Um, so it's great. And I have always said I hope to swim uh, in the harbor. I'm a big swimmer. I, I often swim just uh, in Burlington. And uh, coming swimming in Hamilton, uh, you know, no wetsuit or anything um, when, uh, you know, when it's all done. When you look at the way this place was uh, when you were still going to school here way back when, uh, and you look at the West Harbor, which, was, by the way, is also one of the most polluted areas in yeah. this area. And you look at what they've done now with the, the, the rejuvenation of that. Uh, do you see that happening in other parts? There's always going to be industry. Has to be industry. I mean, that's part of our economic feature in this city. But can you marry those two ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think like Hamilton's doing it right now. I'm so proud. Like when I come back, it's amazing to see, and it's amazing to see that the community came together. Because it's not really, it's not just about governments, and sometimes not about governments at all. It's about people saying, "Hey, this is an amazing opportunity. Wouldn't it be incredible if we could fix up the waterfront? If we could, you know, be able to go down there for walks? If we could enjoy it uh, with our families? And now you can." And uh, that's that's great for tourism. It's a great selling feature uh, for for Hamilton. Uh, you know, my friends in Toronto, they all want to move to Hamilton. And I said, sorry, you missed the you missed the bus. Um, <laughs> no, I told them they're still they're still welcome. Um, they are only waking up to how awesome uh, how awesome Hamilton is. Um, but no, I, I think this is just a, I think the Canadians have really recognized that we can do right by the economy and we can do right by the environment. And as I say, the harbor is a very, the harbor front is a very tangible, uh, tangible example. I will do a plug. Uh, I'm responsible for parks and uh, national parks and historic sites. Um, and HMCS Haida is, uh, is out in the, in uh, the harbor there. It's great, uh, great to visit there. You can see some of our amazing parks folks and tour uh, you know, an amazing uh, ship, uh, a large part of our Canada's history. Lots going on. I know you've got a very busy agenda. We really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, pop in and say hi to us today and uh, bring us up to speed on that. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Minister of the Environment, uh, Catherine McKenna, in town today. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A little while ago, we had uh, Todd White, chairman of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education, on the program, and uh, he talked about what I thought was a very innovative idea about Uh, how to salvage uh, Sir Johnny McDonald's school and actually build a a community hub along with a number of partners uh, in the community. But uh, he told us at the time that uh, they were going to make this proposition to the Ministry of Education, of course, because they're the ones, obviously, that fund these sorts of things. Well, they heard back from them, and, uh, well, unfortunately, the answer was no. Uh, Rather frustrating. Let's bring Todd back onto the program. Todd White, Chairman of the Board for the Hamilton Board of Education. How are you doing this morning, Todd, other than that? Yeah. <laughs> good morning, Bill. How are you? Good. Good. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, first of all the answer. And uh, I, I'm getting the impression that this was really just based on this this mathematical formula that the board uses for funding, as opposed to looking at this as an innovative idea. Well, I think you hit it on the head, and this is the, the frustrating piece. With community hubs, there's many different provincial ministries involved, many different uh, uh, areas of focus and, and services that could be delivered. In this case, what it came down to was uh, rave reviews from uh, a number of other ministries, uh, aside from the Ministry of Education, and we evaluated it in, uh, from the point of view of access pupil places, 
um, long-term um, building, uh, the structure of those buildings, etc. And while they said it's, it's, a, it's an okay case, it's a reasonable case, because there would be two schools closing, at the end of the day, uh, we didn't eliminate enough people places, therefore it didn't justify the, uh, the price tag. Let's talk about the proposal a little bit, just to remind our listeners what was involved. Uh, some time ago, uh, when you did your review, of course, Sir John A. Macdonald was slated for closure. Uh, you and I have agreed to disagree on that, but I mean, it's, that's the policy and that's the way things are going on that. But then you came back with this rather innovative idea about how to keep this property and actually address a couple of other problems, including Hess Street School and, and some other things that were happening in the community. Maybe just uh, give us a, a sketch once again of what you were proposing to do. That's right. So the conversation started with a with a, an accommodation review in that area, which is, uh, well, it often gets people rather anxious and upset. Um, one of the proposals was to close uh, Hess Street School. Well, we flipped that on its head, and uh, as a result, came up with a community hub plan, which uh, would redevelop the eight acres of property on the Sir John A. Macdonald uh, site. And we established uh, five partners, including ourselves. So we had the YMCA on board, along with Hamilton Health Sciences, Hamilton Community Foundation, uh, Qantas Homes, uh, and uh, yeah, and the City of Hamilton, of course. So we had five very strong partners, really great idea. Uh, we went so far as to build some pretty strong business cases, uh, and we presented them uh, to the various ministries. And like I said, the unfortunate uh, result is that the answer is no at this time. Um, but unfortunately, as well, there's the next opportunity for at least school, the school portion of the hub, um, won't be until mid-next year uh, at the earliest. And a lot of that is up in the air because we have a provincial election coming up as well. I, I, I'm flabbergasted by this, frankly, because I had high hopes for this. I know you did, certainly. But uh, to be able to bring all those people to the table, I mean, this is something that could solve an awful lot of problems in this, in the core that we've been talking about for years, there's a there's a housing component here. There's a help center involved in this, and obviously the schooling things. And and as you mentioned, you've had very good response from other ministries about this. Uh, can you knock on somebody else's door and see if they want to throw a few bucks at this thing? <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll knock on anyone's door. And I have to admit that of of all the initiatives that we've pursued in uh, in my time at the board, this this has to be the most disappointing. Um, because you think of you know what the alternative could be, and that is come June 2019, John A. McDonald closes, and you're going to have 80 acres of property downtown with a big fence around it and a derelict building at some point, you know, and that's that's not the vision for downtown Hamilton with all the momentum that we have. So we felt we were onto something phenomenal for the city of Hamilton, for a number of different services, major partners. At the end of the day, it came down to building a JK-8 elementary school and whether it was feasible. Um, so, so that's where you know our, our hope was all the components come together. And once again, you know, so disappointed with with uh, at least the decision at this time. But but when you look at what you guys are asking here. I, I got to think in the long term, this is actually going to save the, the, the ministry money. I mean, this is an effective reuse of a property. It's an amalgamation of a whole different bunch of things that are needed in the downtown. Did did they just say no? I mean, you know, this this seems very very myopic on their part to simply say, well, no, we're not going to fund this thing and, well, and close the door on it. Yeah, and the investment in that property would be something in the ballpark of you know two hundred million dollars by the time all the partners landed where they needed to. Uh, our portion, for at least the school and a couple of our other services, were in the ballpark of about 16 
million. So we're talking a drop in the bucket of the total investment. Um, and mind you, we weren't just asking for a random rebuild. There's two schools that would close, two properties that could be potentially sold. There's some money here uh, at long-term as you would imagine, repairs on those two buildings that aren't in great shape. So we actually had a pretty solid business case, even for the school portion, not taking into account the rest. So it does seem a little bit, uh, it does seem a little bit short-sighted, but I think it's that classic example of each ministry has its mandate, and to try to herd the cats, <laughs> you know, around one idea when, when they think so differently uh, between ministries, it, that's the challenge, it really is. I mean, I've had some discussions with some folks whose uh, children are involved in, for instance, the alternative education programs, and there's a variety of those with your board. And and you know this, Todd, but the listeners need to know, some of these classes are taking place in reading rooms in libraries or community rooms and community centers because there's no space for them. Yeah. They don't have a home. And that's frustrating because some of these children that are going through those programs that are living with autism and a number of, of learning disabilities uh, can't gravitate to this because they, the change is very difficult for them. And, you know, Tuesday I have to be there. Wednesday has to be there because there's no room there on Tuesday. Uh, this this would have solved an awful lot of problems. Do they not see the, the vision here? Well, and, and that was part of our pitch to think outside of the box, to tell them some of those bigger pieces. So, you know, you're absolutely right. We, there, there's storefronts that we rent across the city to deliver some of these alternative education programs, adult education programs. So to be able to, to locate them on a central site, keeping in mind that, you know, this is right in the middle of an LRT hub as well, where it's accessible, you know, it's central, it's everything that you would imagine. And uh, and, and, and that, at the end of the day, you know, that that's the reaction. So, you know, I'm kind of at a loss of words <laughs> for once. Well, look at it this way. I mean, I guess you haven't had a chance to actually sit down with your other community partners here and and talk about next steps. But this is a, an idea that you don't want to see die. So what can you do at this stage? So so what we have within our authority um, as a school board, while we don't control a lot of our own finances, uh, those require ministry approval, uh, at least the big ticket items. Uh, but we do own and control that property. So the best thing I think that we can do is, is make sure that we communicate that we're in it for the the long haul, and we're not interested in, in, in severing or selling that property. The vision is for education. It always has been. And one of the criticisms when closing Sir John A. was uh, we were abandoning the core. And I think this, this effort is to show that, no, we're not abandoning the core. Um, we need a future of education on that site, and we're going we're gonna to stick with it. Yeah, but you've got some heavy hitters here when you're talking about Hamilton Health Sciences, the Community Foundation, uh, you know, the YMCA. Uh, can is, is there a possibility that, that like you say, I, I was being facetious when I said knock on somebody else's door over at Queen's Park, but, I mean, there have to be other people you can talk to now. This is this is an innovative, outside-the-box idea, and, and I'd hate to think it's going to die simply because some narrow-minded individual at the Ministry of Education says it doesn't fit my formula. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's um, it's, a, it's a really good argument in, in terms of, being proactive and making the pitch. What, what I tend to find with with a lot of funding is that until the, the funder kind of feels the pain, we don't necessarily understand the vision. So right now it's an operating school. Um, the other two schools are in okay condition that would close. Um, but come June 2019, when, when Sir John A. closes, a lot of folks are going to start feeling uncomfortable about that eight, eight acres of property. 
you know, there will be others, I'm sure, that will come and ask uh, about what we're going to do with that property, what the next plan is going to be. Oh, you, you know if you put this on the market, you, this thing can be sold in five oh, minutes. I mean, everybody exactly. wants that land. So we, we know people will be knocking at our door. So for us to ourselves be short-sighted and say, okay, we tried once, we're going to abandon this, I think would be uh, rather disappointing, to say the least. So we're at the stage right now where we communicate very clearly that we're going to stick with that property and we're not going to have anyone develop it or or make some short-term decisions and compromise those eight acres. And I think once the ministries, uh, Ministry of Ed, you know, other partners, like you said, start to see the impact of having eight acres of property downtown with really no use, that's where I think people start thinking outside of the box. But we try to preempt that. I mean, rather than wait till the fence goes up and the building's vacant and everyone complains, then try to think of a good idea. We tried to do it <laughs> ahead of time, but... Obviously, I don't think there was enough pressure, perhaps, to to act here in 2018. All right, but this was essentially a, a bureaucratic decision uh, you know, made by, as I say, somebody in the ministry about this this decision. Can you go political on this? I mean, there is well, an election coming up in a couple of weeks. I guess you've heard that. Well, yeah, 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 we have, for sure. And and we have worked with a number of different politicians. I mean, Ted McMeekin has uh, tried to champion this. He's been very strong in terms of... Uh, making sure people are at the table. Uh, we also work with the Community Hubs Secretariat, which is a special advisor to the Premier. Uh, her name's Karen Petrie, and her job is to kind of rally everyone around that concept. And she did a fantastic job. But at the end of the day, um, it really came down to just the Ministry of Education. And I think that's, that's the disappointing part in the, in the whole formula, which is, you know, when you look at the pros and cons, at what point is it worth it to fund a school? So, the rest of the hub can work and the services can be delivered. So that's where I think we'll continue to make that, that appeal. But we, the, the main thing I think that's worked against us is the tight timelines. Usually if you're developing a community hub, you know, those things can be in the works for, you know, two, three, four, or five years. Um, we really hit the ground running last June on this idea, knowing that the ministry was pushing a, a community hubs initiative and knowing that the time uh, the clock was ticking with the next provincial election. So we wanted to get in there before uh, time ran out. So we've really pushed it. But I think at the end of the day, while you know you might take it to another level and try to go political, there really isn't that much time left. That's the unfortunate piece. No, but obviously you're looking for commitments to this. But you just touched on a very, I think, relevant point here. It's the province themselves that said we want to develop community hubs as opposed to, in, you know, uh, the, the things that have been happening for the last 40 years who about intensification and everything else. I mean, you're singing from that song sheet. Does the right hand not know what the left hand's doing at Queen's Park? Well, and that's, and that's, <laughs> that's one of the frustrating elements. So last May, I think it was May 1st, I attended uh, a province-led community hubs summit in Toronto. And they had hundreds and hundreds of people registered. Uh, these are public agencies, not-for-profits, you know, anyone you could imagine. Uh, and they had every ministry represented there as well. And, and they pitched this idea, um, which was develop community hubs. They come to the table with um, some strong ideas, you know, and they gave kind of tips and tricks of how to do it. Um, we, we left that session with a couple of us from that from our board and said, you know, let's, let's try to do this with the 8 acres downtown Hamilton. Um, so that's what we developed. And the feedback we received was this is one of the best, you know, hubs that they've seen, uh, not just in Hamilton, but across the province, potentially one of the strongest. And once again, we didn't get the funding. So I'm not sure how many of these projects have been successful, um, especially if we were told we were one of the best. So 
it's a little bit disappointing that they were very strong in community hubs, but uh, unfortunately haven't delivered. So I, here we go again. I mean, obviously we're concerned about what's going to happen politically here and any commitment to this. I mean, from what I understand, there's a very lively race going on in this provincial election uh, between the three main candidates in, in Hamilton Center. Uh, have you had a discussion with them, brought them to the table? I mean, one of them is going to be the representative for that area when this when the dust settles here. Well, well, and then that's it. I mean, in terms of the the existing folks, we've had strong support from from Andrea Horvath. Uh, she came out very strong last September when we uh, submitted the original business case, uh, at least for our portion of the of the hub. Um, we've had strong support from Jason Parr and the mayor of Hamilton. We've had Tevik Meekin support. In terms of how it plays out in the election, I mean, my hope would be any of the local candidates would see the value in this. Um, we know it's one of the best pieces of property left in the city, and uh, no one that I've ever run into has, has criticized the vision. So it's just, maybe it's a waiting game. Um, maybe the funding just didn't line up now for whether it's bureaucratic or political reasons. Um, but we're going to stick with it. So hopefully, whatever the outcome is after June, uh, someone will be uh, in support of the idea. What's the uh, what's the fallout from this now? I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, John A. still slated for closure. You want to think that you're going to get some sort of a, a reprieve or maybe a change of heart or something before that, but uh, you're going to have to go to school now next school year uh, with the status quo. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily. Not at all, really. When you think of it, if, if you were a, a family at Hess Street School or Sarapona School where you were looking forward to this, you went through a long accommodation review hearing about how your school might close or might not close, um, and you've kind of been dragged through this conversation, it really isn't fair to those families to kind of sit there and not know what the future of their school may be. Um, I really hate those decisions. And in education, that seems to always be the case because we don't control our finances. So we need to make the business cases, and everything's funded after the fact. So we can't really make promises, but we can suggest ideas. And unfortunately, it misleads a lot of our families and leaves them in limbo. And when you look at Hess Street School, I mean, there probably isn't a better case to make for a rebuild of any school in our city based on the services that are needed to support in that community. It just lines up so perfectly. And maybe, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, you know, made in Toronto approach that, you know, they don't realize what's happening in Hamilton and how important that property is in Hamilton. Maybe on paper, it just looks like another school. Um, so all of those factors considered, it is, it is, uh, um, definitely something that, that leaves us uneasy. You know, one of the reasons I asked about going political is because what this does, Todd, is underscored something I've been talking about, and I know you have at the board for quite some time, is the formula itself that the, the ministry is using uh, to try to address this thing about student spaces and new schools is really out of date and, and very impractical for what's going on in not just Hamilton, but just about every other Ontario city. Well, well, and then that's it. I mean, the formula is pretty cut and dry. I mean, they have about five criteria um, that they rate each project. Um, in this project, we were quite high in a number of the categories. The one that uh, wasn't as strong was the elimination of pupil places. Um, but that's the whole purpose, you know, at least as pitched to us from a community hub perspective, was in order to line up all these different provincial agencies or local agencies, and try to get funding at the exact same time is, is impossible. Because when you look at, you know, our funding opportunity that comes up once a year or so, to try to line that up with the why and then Hamilton Health Sciences and the city, like, good luck trying to get everyone on the same page. The purpose of the, the hub coordinators and, and that whole initiative is to 
think outside the box and create those opportunities where we can sink all of the cycles that we can't control. But we need that provincial leadership in order to sink all of the timing, or else you're just going to have this patchwork of funding and inevitably groups just waiting on, on funding. It takes years and years and years. Well, hopefully, hopefully with uh, the election coming up in June, somebody's going to step to the fore here and maybe try to rectify this. Uh, don't put those in the blue box yet, those plans for this thing. I, I still think we can do, hopefully get something to happen here. Todd, thanks so much for this. Thank you very much, Bill. I really appreciate it. Todd White, Chairman of the Board for the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, we'll uh, stay on top of the story and let you know if there are any new developments. Big, big move for, for the downtown and exactly what this area needs. It's just unfortunate that somebody in a corner office at Queen's Park there doesn't seem to get that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We've been talking uh, about some of the great development plans going on in the city of Hamilton, and um, there are things that will happen from time to time where there's going to be some people that are opposed to it, some in favor. This happens with any development. And the way to settle that in the past has always been to go to the OMB, that's the Ontario Municipal Board, who is supposed to sit down, listen to both sides, and then make a judgment as to which way things are going to go. They did that with the ward boundary issue, you may recall. Well, the province has disbanded the Ontario Municipal Board, and there's a new body that's uh, supposed to take its place called the Land Planning Appeal Tribunal. Problem is, there are still a lot of cases in the hopper that the OMB didn't get around to dealing with, and there's some pretty important ones and rather significant ones for the city of Hamilton. And now we don't know when or if they're going to be dealing with these and how long it's going to take. It's got to be a very frustrating situation for city council. Chad Collins from Ward 5 joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. How are you doing this morning, Chad? Thanks for having me on, Bill. Well, this is, this is yeah, this is a big deal because, I mean, there's a lot of things here that, that, that are happening. And we talk about uh, some of these condo projects. And, of course, maybe mm-hmm. the big one that we need to talk about is the waterfront development around Pier 8. And, yep. uh, and the plans that you've got for this. Uh, and sitting around waiting uh, for the OMB or whoever's going to hear this thing uh, is got to be frustrating for you. It is. It's, it's almost a scenario of one step forward and two steps back. And to be clear, we were very thankful that the province finally moved on OMB reform. Um, you know, for decades, municipalities, and to be clear, developers as well, have complained about the provincial process. Uh, from the municip- municipalities side of things uh, and from the community's perspective, it, the OMB was always characterized as too developer-friendly. So decisions that were oftentimes made at that level by the province were uh, in favor of the developer. And from the development uh, community, the criticism always was, you know, municipalities oftentimes would take the easy out and with controversial decisions would just kick things to the province so they wouldn't be the bad guy. So there was certainly some criticisms from the entire development community as well as municipalities and all stakeholders associated with the old OMB and and there needed to be reform and the the province finally acted on that and and you just characterized the new board and tribunal that's been put in place and so now we're caught in this situation where we have applications that would apply to the old OMB Um, anything I think that was appealed before early part of December will fall under the old process and the new um, uh, process, the new LPAT uh, system that you just referenced, has very strict timelines associated with it. So anything that's come under appeal after the, the uh, December date um, will now be required by law to be dealt with almost within a year's time. So right, let me, let me ask you about process here, yeah. Chad, because I, I was... Maybe you can clarify something. The, the the ones that are in the hopper, and there's a bunch of them that pertain to Hamilton, uh, yep. the, the OMB, now do they, they still get to go under the OMB. Is it the OMB actually that's going to hear this, or is it going to be the new committee just using old rules? It'll be the it'll be the old process. So it's the same staff. Um, okay. 
so it's it's the old OMB. So so that's gone, but it's not really gone. Correct. Yep. So there's there's going to be these leftover cases, and they're substantial. You highlighted that right in the opening there, and, and there are some very big files that are under appeal here. And from the, from the municipality standpoint, we have probably some of the largest and most important planning files that we've dealt with over the last, I'd say, year to 18 months. Um, the urban and rural official plans, which took us years to deal with and get through uh, the stakeholder process. That includes the whole El Frida development issues tied to that. The Fruitland Winona secondary plan, which seems like that's been in the hopper forever. That's at the board right now under the old process. Piers, uh, the Pier 8, the nine blocks that we're poised to sell uh, very shortly to a developer or a consortium. Um, that is caught up in that process. The Pier 6 and 7, which is primary, primarily commercial, just next to Pier 8, is included there. Music on patios, which I know you've covered extensively on the show uh, in terms of the city's bylaw that was bumped up to the OMB. Rural zoning bylaw, the commercial mixed-use bylaws, uh, transit-oriented cor- corridor, which is uh, you know, something that we spent a lot of time on preparing for higher order transit in the lower city and other areas. So these are some of the, the largest planning files that have spent, uh, we've spent an inordinate amount of time. We've, we've received all kinds of stakeholder feedback. And, and these large files have now been appealed under the old process. And the questions that we asked yesterday of our staff at, at the committee me- meeting was walk us through the process. And, and so these were appealed before the December date. Um, our staff advised that now in sometime late 218, we will get a pre-hearing, which, you know, you, you, you meet the other party, you start to talk about mediation if possible. Those, those files will then be scheduled in 219 for hearings. And we were told that it's middle to late 219 in terms of the earliest the OMB could entertain. Some of these files will take weeks to go through the hearing process. And that means we're probably looking at a early to mid to 2020 um, decision from the old OMB uh, tribunal process, which is mind-boggling, Bill. When, when, you know, I just went through, the, that's the city-initiated files. We also have developers who, whose plans have been appealed by community or by the city, or there are a lot of developers that just decided to send their stuff right to the board in December because, you know, they, they may have seen, and I'm just guessing, it's anecdotal, they may have seen the old process, as I characterized it earlier, as more developer-friendly, so there, I think there's almost 20 of those applications um, in, in various areas of the city, mostly neighborhood-related uh, developments or housing developments that have been bumped there, too. So we're probably looking at about 30 in total and, and some of the larger files with huge implications. So as they sit, you know, we can't move forward with the new regulations. Many of those uh, policy changes have modernized the city's planning process. And so traditionally, we've worked from plans that are dated from the 50s and 70s and, you know, even the time of amalgamation. All of these new plans modernize the um, the, the planning rules that we, we work from. And, and they assist the development community, investors who are now coming from all over the place, as, as we experience these record building development numbers. Um, you know, they come to the city now and they look at these new documents and they're thankful that they're not dealing with outdated legislation and, and so it creates a problem for us. It creates a problem from an investment standpoint. Uh, the fact that some of these plans delay the sale of lands on the harbor um, hurts us from an assessment standpoint. 
And if it's hurting us from an assessment standpoint, then it's hurting us from a growth standpoint. Well, well. it's also going to hurt you from you know, a proposal of investment here, too. I mean, let's face yep. it. And you saw this happen up on Stony Creek Mountain years ago, Chad. It probably even mm-hmm. predates your time on council, where mm-hmm. a lot of people tried to buy land there in the anticipation that the Red Hill was going to be built. Of course, that got delayed by the government. And yep. a lot of them just gave up and said, forget it. We're selling the land. We can't wait around. We're going to go somewhere else. Uh, yes. I don't want to think that's going to happen on Pier 7 and 8, but uh, if this thing gets delayed another two and a half years, you don't know. And, and developers are looking for certainty, Bill, and I think sure. that's what you speak to, right? They're, they're want, they want to ensure that when they make an investment in the city, that there's going to be a return on that investment in, in some kind of a timely manner. So the prospect of someone investing, buying land, and then having to sit on it for two, three years, and then not knowing what the outcome is, because it's a, it's a roll of the dice sometimes at the OMB it is very problematic, and I think sends a very poor, poor um, uh, message to the development community about things that are happening in our city, and and that's all tied to a provincial process. So the discussion we had yesterday, and the and the motion that I'll be putting to our next meeting, is that uh, we petition the province to expedite those appeals. It's all about resources. It just means possibly temporarily hiring more tribunal members. It means freeing up their they're the backlog that they have, and this is not unique to Hamilton. This is happening in Toronto. This is happening in Ottawa, Windsor. You name it, it's happening across Well, we, we've the talked with Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring and, yep. and some of the councillors there about some rather contentious issues, and they're mog- bogged down in this same situation. It's happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. we got to talk about yeah, process for a second. I mean, uh, sure. uh, both you and I have had the pleasure, and I use the term advisedly, of watching an <laughs> OMB hearing. Yep. Uh, it's not that difficult. It's not as if, well, everybody has to meet in Toronto. and do th- You can hold the ma- a number of them were held at City Hall back in the day. You, yep. you, all you need is a meeting room and get both sides together. I mean, they could move this along if they wanted to. That's right. It, it really means um, having more members in place. And so those uh, tribunal, uh, the members, I'm not sure if they're officially adjudicators or what their title is, but the tribunal members are hired by the province, and they're, they're, they act much like a, it's a court proceeding, uh, uh, and it's a very for, formal process, but it is, it's a local process. And so oftentimes when an application is appealed in Hamilton, they're looking for a meeting room in the city. Um, we've held them at City Hall, as you mentioned. We've had, had them at uh, Dundas Hall. We've had them at a, a lot of the uh, former municipal uh, town centres, and, um, and they've held them in private facilities where, you know, when, um, when they can't find room in a public facility. So that, that's, that's not an issue in terms of finding the space. It really is, it comes down to um, having the appropriate number of staffers available at the provincial level to hear the presentations that have been made by both parties or multiple parties when there are residents or other stakeholders involved, and then having those members go off and write a decision. And, um, and so uh, we're very pleased that we're not tied to a very complicated process with the new LPAT situation. There are very clear timelines. There are we, we're not going to see these multi-day or multi-week hearings. Um, you're very limited in terms of you know give us your package, um, make a presentation, and then the the board's going to make a decision within a certain amount of time. And and there's no there's no disputing anymore. If I if I um, followed the conversation correctly yesterday, there's no disputing and picking apart words and uh, you know in the city's plans and coming up with a whole laundry list of complaints and grievances that oftentimes don't have anything to do with the application itself. Uh, This process is very narrow. It's very focused, the new process. And uh, we're hoping, and there's still a big question mark out there in terms of how it will, will work, we're hoping that it um, it serves the community a lot better than the old OMB process, which it seemed seemed to be unanimity across the province, and 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 um, you know the the calls from 
not just residents, but from municipalities, that the old system needed to change, and they've done that. Well, and it was just too slow. I mean, that was one of the big complaints about the OMB. I mean, I'm sure yeah. there were some files that said, did we appeal that? That was a couple of years ago. Haven't the, exactly. Uh, but uh, such it goes. And, and I, 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 I've talked to other councillors, Chad, and I understand they all share that that hope that uh, that this new place, uh, this land planning uh, tribunal, mm-hmm. is going to do that. And it's going to give uh, local councils a lot more weight on, with their decisions. And that that's a good thing. But we're not there yet. That's the problem. Uh, and there's something as simple as this. I mean, you know, eventually it's going to get warm and people are going to want to sit out on patios. And we still haven't resolved this music on the patio thing in this city. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know that you're going to get bar owners and patrons that are going to be calling your guy's office and say, how come you guys haven't dealt with that yet? Well, you have, but it's held up at the OMB. Yes. So right now the process would be um, similar to what we've experienced for the last uh, 10, 20 years, almost since the, the time of amalgamation. A bar owner who wants music on a patio is now required to go to Committee of Adjustment, and there's certainly a circulation process for that. I think there was some consternation, certainly along the waterfront in the downtown. I know Councillor Farr was looking at something that assisted some of our entertainment districts. So I don't. it wasn't really necessarily a, a community-wide um, bylaw that we were gravitating to, but it was certainly something that we've heard from the investment committee, specifically restaurant owners and, and others in the entertainment industry, that they wanted something a little bit more flexible. So that, you're right, that that is the, the pause but button has been pushed on that file, in addition to some of those bigger, especially the West Harbor ones. I mean, we've <laughs> we've been working to be shovel-ready by the end of the term, um, and we're, we're on pace to do that, and we have that development, um, you know, the expression of interest and RFP that's out on the street right now. We have four very large corporations who are ready to build a residential community on Pier 8, and the fact that this delay is kind of looming uh, on the side is uh, is concerning. What options do you have at this stage? I mean, as I say, this is not a Hamilton-only problem. This is happening to just about anybody, everybody who's got uh, you know, development plans going on. Uh, I guess you have to petition the province in a situation like this. That's exactly it. We're petitioning for resources. We're asking them to find, uh, to create a plan to assist municipalities through this transition period, if we can call it that. Uh, the the two-year wait is unacceptable, not just from the municipality's perspective. There are a lot of residents who are wondering what's happening with that development on their block that was proposed by the developer, and they're anxious to get some resolution. And there are investors who are anxious to see some resolution on these files. You know, the um, the Brad Lamb development downtown is on that list of on the development side of things that have been pushed to the OMB. So lots of very high-profile uh, files. And, um, you know, it probably couldn't come at a worse time, Bill, because everyone's in election mode at the province. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to have a new government. We don't know what party yet. We can guess. Um, but then there's their whole issue of orientation and swearing in. And so it, it really, again, couldn't come at a worse time. And um, we're hoping that the new government, whoever they might be, uh, will, will give this file some priority and, 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 and dedicate some resources to it to assist uh, Ontario municipalities and, and communities with with investments that have been again just put on hold because of of this transition period and and your points well taken i know we're just a little out of time here but this is not just a matter of hey we have to wait two years that's inconvenient just mm-hmm. think here we are right now in 2018 go back two years and look at how the real estate market was then yep. it was red hot and yep. it, and if there was an appeal that went in that was delayed two years now look at where the, where the market's down everywhere uh, and that has an impact on, on investment. I mean, you know, the longer you wait, the chances of something happening, either good or bad, are, are increase significantly, and that can impact a, well, a whole project. That's right. We've 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 seen those peaks and valleys, and that's just the nature of you know the economic cycles across the world. And, and we're always hoping 
to strike while the iron's hot when we hit those peaks. And, um, and if you miss out on that wave, you know, those, those investments can be delayed for years, depending on how long it takes for that market then to rise again. So we're, we're still in a good position in that regard. But as you said, there's some uncertainty in terms of, you know, where are we two years from now when, when these applications at, under the current scenario are fin- finally going to be dealt with? Do we still have the same warm or hot economic climate here in Hamilton? Is there still that same desire by investors to try to build as quickly as possible to meet the housing demands that are out there? or commercial and industrial properties that may be caught up in this as well. So lots of questions at this point. And, and again, all eyes are on the province to, to, to make a decision and, and essentially, at the end of the day, provide resources to something that's um, holding up development. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. Chad, thanks for the time on this. Thanks, Bill. Have a good day. You too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.